Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Quillette is a website that calls itself a platform for free thought and for dangerous ideas. Turns out a lot of those thoughts and ideas are about trans people. Here are some headlines. Confronting a new threat to female athletics. Silencing women in the name of trans activism. How trans radicalism hurts women, children, and trans people themselves. Trans activists' campaign against TERFs has become an attack on science. The unspoken homophobia propelling the transgender movement in children. Trans activism's dangerous myth of parental rejection. There are many, many more. And there's a trend you may have noticed in that language, a recurring association in Quillette of trans people with threats, attacks, danger, radicalism, harm, especially harm to children. Quillette is not alone in its obsession with trans people and in painting their campaign for you know basic human rights as some kind of wider menace. 
Jordan Peterson, of course, launched his multi-million dollar personal brand on his opposition to the inclusion of transgendered people into Canada's Human Rights Act. National Post columnist Barbara Kay, happens to be the mother of Quillette editor John Kay, is similarly fixated. Trans fanaticism has gone too far. Trans rights laws are dangerous. Caitlyn Jenner trivializes the momentousness of what it means to be a woman. And on and on it goes. To put this level of rabid media focus into perspective, about 0.6% of the population identifies as transgendered. But there's something about this topic that touches a raw nerve in a lot of people. Something about it triggers disgust and anger in a way that seems wildly disproportionate to the actual impact that trans people have on the lives of the people who write articles and tweets about them. Take, for example, the case of Jessica Yaniv. Jessica Yaniv, as many of you will have heard by now, is the living embodiment of everything Quillette fears. She is the trans menace. She is the straight man in a dress who lurks in girls' washrooms. She wants to force poor immigrant women to wax her balls. She demands that everyone bow down to her rights, even as she spews racist and sexist tweets at others. She cries victim if you so much as look at her. She wears a tiara and a princess dress and brandishes a taser gun, and our lunatic government is taking her side, so you had better resist her and everything she stands for, or you'll be next. You'll be the one forced to wax her balls. Now, I'm pretty sure that a lot of that isn't true. A lot of things about Jessica Yaniv are not true. What I know for sure is that she lodged a bunch of human rights complaints against beauticians who she claims refused her service because they say she's a man. That part is true. But the rest? It is not true, for example, that Jessica Yaniv has 150,000 people following her on Twitter because most of them are bots. It is not true that anyone has ever actually been forced to wax her genitalia. I hope. And it for sure isn't true that the government has taken her side. So far, all that they have agreed to do is to hear her complaints. There is a lot of evidence that Jessica Yaniv is acting in bad faith, evidence that should give any journalist pause before taking her or anything that she says seriously, especially her claim that she is acting on behalf of trans rights. And yet journalists have credulously been reporting that Yaniv is for real, that she is a real activist, who is about to set a dangerous precedent. That Jessica Yaniv is what trans rights are all about. This story broke in the post-millennial, and it bubbled up through the National Post to the Christian press to Breitbart and Alex Jones and other American extreme right websites, overseas to the Australian, back home again to the Globe and Mail. Yaniv is now one of the most famous trans media figures in the world. All of which has got to suck for my guest today, Mary Rogan. Mary is a career journalist, a former CBC producer, a writer of many excellent magazine features about crime and other topics. One of the things Mary wrote about a few years back in The Walrus was a piece called Growing Up Trans, about their experience not identifying with their assigned gender as a girl. Mary is trans, and they appeared on TVO's The Agenda in 2016, ostensibly to talk about trans issues on a panel that also included a then-obscure professor named Jordan Peterson. Here is a bit of what that sounded like. It seems to me one of his anxieties, and he talks about being fearful and, and anxious in, in his video, um, that somehow there's a cabal of trans activists 
who have so much power that they are going to, you know, using the pronouns that people want and capitulating to these demands pulls out the critical Jenga piece of the Western canon, right? I mean, basically, Jordan is arguing that this is going to create chaos and anarchy and that it's, that it's essentially a Marxist plot. It's not a transsexual cabal by any stretch of the imagination. Is it a cabal of radical left-wingers? Yes, it's a cabal of radical left-wingers, and they've been active behind and in front of the scenes increasingly over the last 30 years. For Mary and a lot of other trans voices, getting the media to pay the slightest attention to what they had to say was an incredible challenge for many years. That was before the media discovered Jessica Yaniv. And Mary Rogan joins me in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Chris Kennedy, Alison Price, Alex Eggenberger, Brian O'Neill, Nicole Bransma, Tim Everett, Stephen McLean, and Ryan. I'm Ryan from Vancouver. I'm an architectural technologist, and I support Canada Land because of the great perspective it has on Canadian media accountability and because it gives a voice to those that wouldn't get a fair shake elsewhere. And if you haven't listened to Crude yet, you absolutely have to. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. My name is Mary Rogan. I'm a freelance writer in Toronto. What I do is look around at the world and see how what's really fucked, and I try to talk about it. Mary, you were there, physically present at Jordan Peterson's, like, superhero origin story. That appearance on the agenda arguably launched his brand, this global brand, which is a brand that is built largely on his response to a trans issue. 
Yeah, I was there. The interesting thing is the story that I did for the walrus growing up trans, um, when I was doing my research at the front end, it takes a long time. You talk to a lot of different people. One of the names that was given to me was some guy named Jordan Peterson. Yeah. And never heard of him. No one had heard of him. I called him. I reached him in New York, and he was there for some men's rights conference or something. And he's clearly walking through New York City, and he's shouting, as he does. He has that kind of reedy, shouty voice. Mm -hmm. And I remember just listening to him thinking, this guy's kind of crazy. And I never used the tape. I know I have the tape somewhere, but I thought, he's too crazy for me to use for this piece. And I remember he called me back once. Do you want to talk to me more? I'm like, yeah, no. He um, called you back to see if he could contribute yeah. to your story. And so, so the next time I saw him was after I'd written the article, Growing Up Trans, and I was on that agenda thing with uh, Steve Pakin and company. And I don't... I don't know if he ever put it together that I had spoken to him. He wouldn't have seen himself in print, so I don't think he probably remembered me. Maybe right, he did. Right, make the connection that this person on the panel with him is Yeah, or even when he saw the story. But the point is that, yeah, I definitely think that was part of his big launch. And I think people just didn't see him coming. Peterson was certainly around, and as you say, at this conference and the trans issue and the, and, the, and the pronouns was something that was kind of getting a little bit of attention here in Canada. But then you watched, I mean, here's an issue you have a personal connection to. You wrote about it for the walrus. And then Peterson steps in with his defiance to the pronoun thing. And from an appearance on the agenda, which is a great show, but not huge mass media, launches a global brand. And along with his ascent, it seems to me that I hesitate to even say trans issues, but a certain take on trans issues and a certain centrality given to a defiance to trans issues and trans rights issues has become a mainstream focus of certain parts of the right. Like it's become a huge deal, which must be kind of ironic because for a long time, one of the big complaints is we can't get anyone to talk about this. No, I, th I think you're raising a really good point. I think what's really weird about Jordan Peterson is that I think the world is divided up into two groups in one area, and that is either you saw him coming or you didn't see him coming, insofar as he's the natural extension of other conversations we've had, right, about the dire dangers of A, B, or C, right? He conflates things in a very appealing way. Yeah. You know, the, the pronoun that I use is they, for example. If he calls me they, the Western canon is going to fucking collapse. It's an insane thing, but people like it. It's easy. It's it's like those snap together little play mats. You know, be, I believe it was before the agenda appearance. Right after my growing up trans piece, I pitched the Walrus on doing a profile of Jordan Peterson. And instead they said, he's a flash in the pan. Go chase Kelly Leach. Does anybody remember who <laughs> Kelly Leach is? And, right, and I'm right. still mad about that. Yeah. Right. Because I think that by the time. Who's the editor at the time? Yeah, well, we'll just... We'll just <laughs> was it John Kay? John Kay was in charge at the time, okay. yes. all right. So the point is that I don't think that the walrus was unusual in this instance. I think that Peterson just sort of slyly filled into a slot that was already existing, that was already in play. And because he's so odd and so extreme, and he's great at word salad, and he's talking about Jung, and he's talking about, you know, like, it's unbelievable. And he just throws it all in a pot um, and makes a lot of money from it. But he has a huge influence. Yeah. And so now we have to take him seriously. I mean, watching that appearance now, you had your finger on it right then. I mean, your kind of response to him is sort of how I feel about this stuff now, which was like, I hear what you're saying, but 
you seem convinced that if you use people's pronouns, then a piece of Jenga will be removed, that the entire Western civilization, like this way leads is chaos. And this is the downfall of everything. And I'm not sure you've made that case. I'm not sure that's true. That's sort of my response. Like when we look at not just Peterson, who's built this incredible brand, you got Lindsay Shepard, who is a very famous person in Canada now and has tons of people online following whatever she thinks or says. You've got brands like Quillette that have been built on their coverage, criticism, opposition to this stuff. Uh, the Postmillennial just had a story that we'll talk about more that like I think is their first really big international story. There's people who like are almost like solely focused on trans as I have to oppose this movement or aspects of what what is being asked for in order to protect Western civilization. That must be astonishing for you to see that happening. Why do you think it happened and what can we make of it? Well, I think it's astonishing for a couple of reasons. One, that people are calling it a concern or an interest. It feels like an obsession, yeah. right? Like it has that flavor of it being an obsession. But I also think that it's an old thing that people do. They pick an issue and they then choose an outlier to represent the entire issue. Nobody did it better than Ronald Reagan, right, with the welfare queen. Ronald Reagan was, was not a player in the political scene. He didn't get any traction. He, he tried to run earlier, didn't get anywhere. The second time he ran, he picked up on an old story that had come and gone. This one woman, I can't remember her name, Linda somebody, who came to embody the sort of racist trope of the welfare scam artist who's really driving a Cadillac. And they said Cadillac to sort of add racial overtones. It was brilliant. And he pushed it and pushed it. And that clown got elected, right? I mean, that's amazing. And that was the beginning of people. You pick the most extreme outlier, which a statistician would throw away, and they sell it as an example of something. We saw it with busing. We saw it, you know, so I think... um, I think that's a good example, actually, is like integration, where, where people were able to kind of take a position and say, hey, I got nothing against black people, but some of these young guys, I don't know if I want them in a classroom with my daughter... And you could find a guy who had a rap sheet and you can make that the face of everything. You can always find the guy, right, to fit your stereotype. But I think what I find disturbing and I think a closer analogy is the idea of homosexual panic. Mm -hmm. So in the past, you know, people could attack a homosexual person and the defense could be homosexual panic. Right. I mean, so I, I think in a similar way, what we're seeing now is this strange obsession with transgender people. And it's really focused around children, which I find especially creepy that this is the focus that guys like John Kay and others won't let go of. So you'll have a barrage of tweets that are pretty curated to to create disgust about trans people and then followed by. But there's lots of, you know, I know lots of really nice trans people. So these people, you know, they're ruining it for the rest of trans people. It's very strange. And, And so I think this idea that children in particular are vulnerable is an incredible cudgel. I mean, it's really effective for the right that somehow children, if they are if they look like tomboys, there's a whole cabal of people who are going to turn them into boys. It's really quite paranoid, but it's also effective because you're talking about the idea of a vulnerable child. I guess that's part of the panic is the idea that we're doing this on behalf of that child. And then the other child is the child who is, um, I guess, a girl in a bathroom or a locker room who is intruded upon by a trans woman. You know, you put your finger on this in, in that story in The Walrus. 
Those in the business of sowing moral panic offer lurid descriptions of men in dresses lying in wait in public washrooms to molest little girls. You know, I think this issue is interesting because it gets at a larger problem. We've monetized provocation, right? You know, clickbait, you get everyone's chasing Jessica Yaniv. We don't even need to talk about Jessica Yaniv. She's not a provocateur, right, in any political sense of the word. But what she is is convenient. She kind of embodies all of those worst tropes and fears that we have about transgender people. But I think the larger issue is what is it about transgender people or the idea of gender that has makes people so uneasy, right? I think my theory is that when you look at the stuff that people on the right get agitated about, nothing right now appears to consume them more than this. Mm-hmm. And part of it is that gender itself is an issue that people find challenging. It cuts close to the bone, I think, mm-hmm. for a lot of people. And so there's an un, a, a, a sort of uneasiness that makes them obsess about it. And that's interesting to me, right? Like that's interesting that that it's as if they're defending against a larger issue that everyone grapples with. I would say that anyone who's sort of walking around in the world sort of understands gender as a complicated idea. And these people are trying to make it very simple. But I, I think what happens is that we don't get to the larger issues because as you saw in that Peterson uh, th- that episode of of the agenda, the only time Peterson wasn't on the offense was actually when I spoke to him, mm-hmm. right? In part because what I think happens, these things are so fraught that we go from from outrage to outrage. So Peterson says, I'm not going to use your pronoun. And he'll provide an explanation why. And instead of sticking with that explanation and making him explore that, you will call me by my pronoun, right? And so we're just Yelling. steeped in this emotion. Take the emotion out. I don't care what you think of me. I want to know why you're saying the things you're saying. And you need to defend that. I mean, it's back in grade school, you know, show your work on the math test. Right. You know, I mean, I spent most of my time, you know, looking at the paper next to me, putting down the answers and getting an F because I didn't show my work. And I find that nobody's showing their work now. They're just talking crap. They're saying things that are very explosive and will guarantee an emotional response from the person who's at the receiving end of it. And my thing is that I don't need to respond to, you know, the fact that you're not going to use my pronoun, but I... I would be really interested in you defending how this is the end of civilization and, and this is the thin end of the wedge and this is tyranny and this is, wow, I mean, there, there's some big claims being made that nobody is being asked to defend. They're really not. And that's peculiar to me. Yeah. I mean, it's a few years ago that civilization was supposed to topple because of the laws that Peterson opposes. It hasn't happened yet. And I'm not even aware of anyone being hauled off to jail or, or like I, I, these these effects of it where our expression has been impinged upon. Like, it's just it imaginary. hasn't. It, it is imaginary. And I think if you look again, if we go back to the idea of the change, you know, decriminalizing homosexuality, rates of homosexuality have not increased. Yeah. And somehow that wasn't going to happen, right? It was going to be an explosion of homosexuality. And so I think that people need to be more rational. I mean, this whole idea of the intellectual dark web, I find really frustrating because some of the arguments are just so poor. And so they are 
not intellectual. Right? Which, which ones do you have in mind? You know, um, well, if you look at, and I don't think um, either Rex Murphy or Barbara Kay, I mean, I think they're sort of, they're riding the bench. I mean, they don't actually get to be included in the intellectual dark web, but they're certainly referred to in, in articles. And, you know, Barbara Kay's response to someone like Jessica Yaniv was bizarre and deeply disturbing. I mean, essentially, she wrote a column for the post-millennial that said, well, it would be easier if Jessica Yaniv were a corpse because then she wouldn't be left to decide her own gender and a man would come in and wax her testicles. I mean, that is a deranged, unhinged... Yeah, I, I, I read that and it was an, it was a disturbing look into the into the inner life of Barbara Kay. Yeah, it was it was pretty freaky. And, and then, you know, Rex Murphy sort of comparing Jessica Yaniv to a 79 Chevy. But when you look at some of the other arguments, again, this, this insistence on seeing this as the norm, seeing this as representative of the transgender community, it's simply the most cynical kind of convenience. But I think it's probably more than cynicism. I think that the right really feels like they're being held hostage and you don't negotiate with terrorists. I think that's worth returning to. But first, we have to talk about Jessica and Eve. You say we don't have to talk about Jessica and Eve, and then you mentioned Jessica and Eve many times. I think we do have to talk to Je- about Jessica and Eve just because this has sort of been thrust into the world as uh, as the spokesperson. This is the most prominent trans person in the media, perhaps since Caitlyn Jenner. So I want to show you a piece you might have seen. This is one of the many stories. There was all this stuff when it came up through the post-millennial. Like, why is the mainstream media ignoring Jessica Yaniv? Well, it's been in the Globe. It's been in the Post. It's it's everywhere. This is a story, ostensibly a news story. It's not an opinion piece. Trans activist Jessica Yaniv's human rights complaints brought her prominence. Now she's accused of harassment and predatory behavior. The number of photographs in this. So first there's like this portrait of Yaniv, an up-close headshot. Then a picture of Yaniv in a scooter wearing a turquoise dress arriving for uh, uh, her human rights tribunal hearing. And then here she is calling the police in an elevator. She was just questioned by two people and here she is fearing for her safety in an elevator. And then another headshot from the same series, it seems. Another picture of Yaniv on the scooter. And then one of these pictures of her in like a princess dress. Is that the Post? Are we looking at the National Post? We're looking at the National Post. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it, it borders on the pornographic like, I've seen pictures of, of Yaniv with tiaras on and in princess dresses. And it's hard to do close media analysis of pictures because it's so subjective how you, how you look at them. But like, even the portraits themselves, it feels to me like when you describe in your walrus piece this uh, imaginary image of this trans predator lying in wait in bathrooms, from my first impression of Yaniv, it's like this person is, is, is intentionally or otherwise trying to embody that role. I mean, I don't know how to best approach this because on the one hand, you're right. I did say we don't need to talk about Jessica Yaniv. And then I was talking about her. I think what I meant by that is that I don't want to participate in the idea that this person represents the transgender community. I think it is important to say and to talk about why has the media decided that she represents the transgender community. Part of it is she's available. Right. Jessica Yaniv has made herself available. I can't be in her head. I don't know what motivates her, but I know that she is a convenient person to go to. Because because to your point that this is an imaginary person, that this lives in the imaginations of bigots, really, well, they can say, no, this person's real. 
and she's doing this. But this person has also existed. I mean, these kinds of tropes have also existed in, in movies. The duplicitous transgender person, whether it's the crying game or boys don't cry. A lot of crying going on for transgender. I didn't cry today, by the way. I haven't cried all day. And now there's a new movie out that got a lot of play at Sundance. It's called Adam. And it's about a cisgender teenage boy who is misgendered by a young lesbian who thinks that he is a trans male mm-hmm. and he goes along. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, this, there's a lot of duplicity around some of the images we have of transgender people in the media and in film. But, you know, before I identified as transgender and identified as a lesbian, I remember coming up and it was the same with how gay people were portrayed. Very pathetic, very marginalized. I remember the movie High Art, you know, they were heroin addicts and and, and vampires, Susan Sarandon and, and Catherine Deneuve. Yeah, what was that movie? Um, Hunger. Yeah. You know, right, right, so right. you can be a lesbian, but you're going to have to be turned into a vampire. Like, you know, so this is a longstanding complaint, but things evolve because they get better. And I think that's part of what my objection is to all of this sort of sound in the fury on the right about, you know, I don't want to do this and, and it's too much and I don't want to use that pronoun and we can't accommodate this and we can't. It's never ending. You know, progress is slow and it hurts sometimes and it's a little inconvenient if you have to remember a pronoun. I find they're making a mountain out of a mohill. That's how I feel about it. Yeah, but progress can move backwards, too. Absolutely. To see on Alex Jones on InfoWars, we can mock that program, and we should, but it has a massive audience. And I think it has a massive audience of people who might not have that much exposure to trans people. And the episode that I watched was Jessica Yaniv as the spokesperson of trans rights. Before Alex Jones even got to a lot of the Yaniv case, there was a lot of mockery about, you know, oh, here, you know, here she is, you know, maybe, you know, maybe I'll ask her out on a date. Then Alex Jones just sort of ran through a whole bunch of trans issues to get Yaniv's take. Like, well, what do you think about this? And they were all sort of those issues of like, here's where trans rights are, are intruding upon common sense or intruding upon my rights or intruding upon my privacy. And Yaniv was there as the spokesperson. To a lesser degree, the Post presents Yaniv as an activist. And I challenged that a little bit. Like, what qualifications do you need to... to Call yourself an activist, and certainly what standard does the media have for presenting somebody? Because I don't think that the layperson knows the difference between somebody who's like running a legitimate rights organization and somebody like Yaniv who says, I'm doing this in the name of. of oh, I think rights. you're right. No, people don't know it. I think you're quite correct about that. You know, I, I was mentioning the word provocateur before because I'm, I'm interested in how provocative behaviors become monetized. Mm-hmm. We assume that if someone's being provocative, they're a provocateur. Well, they're not moving the conversation forward, they're not illuminating any larger point. They're simply going to be used to illuminate people's worst fantasies. When you look up the word provocateur, the first guy who pops up, George Orwell. Jessica Yaniv is no no George Orwell. Yeah. I can guarantee that, right? You know, so the idea of, you know, sort of representing Stalinist Russia with animals, you know, that's provocative in a way that can move the conversation forward. But you're not you're not uh, Jonathan Swift. <laughs> yeah, you know, and so I think what's interesting to me is that the same people who insist on on cherry picking these examples to just foment fear. It really disgusts me because they do slide it in under the idea of concern and they dial it back. It's, so, it's, it's very common. They dial it back by saying, but I know lots of trans people who don't want to do any of this stuff. And I was thinking about Jesse Smollett, right? Mm-hmm. The guy who, mm-hmm. who uh, was accused of staging a hate crime. And it's the same, same shit. Well, you know, now I guess, you know, it's, it's bad for people who really are victims of, of you sure. know. And yet 
what I was thinking about, you know, people will fake illnesses sometimes, and they'll sometimes even crowdsource for it. And yet there isn't a groundswell of people saying, if my cousin tells me it's cancer, I'm going to be like, bullshit. I'm going to call bullshit. <laughs> like, that doesn't happen, right? Yeah. So there's only certain groups that when someone steps outside of acceptable human behavior, let's say, you know, maybe they go to 16 different people and ask to have their testicles waxed and then maybe get a little money on, you know, whatever, however you want to view Jessica Yaniv. Even if her behavior falls out of what we might like in a, in a friend or a loved one or a stranger, yeah. the idea of cherry picking that is so cynical and it isn't something we do with other groups. So all of these people who are running around concerned about this one person, when millions of women came forward with hashtag me too and shared some of their stories, the response was hashtag not all men. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, I can't stand, stand the, that. Real I can't stand that hypocrisy. It drives me crazy. Well, the concern trolling was happening as well with suddenly all of these people who are against Geneva were standing up for racialized poor women. Who, yeah. You know, that suddenly they're the champions. Unbelievable. Like, I, I think I'm waiting for a, light, a, a, a bolt of lightning to hit some of these people who have never given a shit about the plight of immigrant women yeah. and who have never been concerned about the plight of marginalized children, either the marginalized through economics, through education, through living on reserves that don't have fresh water. We're not hearing about their concern for the many marginalized children who are at risk in this country. And it just, it, it really irks me. As I engaged with this stuff, I was amazed at when I just was questioning, like, I don't know if this person is in good faith. Maybe this person's doing it for the attention. You're calling this person an activist. Like, is this really a legitimate spokesperson for trans people? The amount of pylon and, and the extremity of it and how important an issue this is to people who have uh, gotten really involved in, in opposing Jessica and Eve surprised me. But then I, I was in an uncomfortable position. I'm like, well, am I going to take this position of, like, I'm standing up for trans people and, like, I'm the arbiter of who their spokesperson should be? My uncomfortable question to you is, which puts you in the unfortunate position, which I don't want to of like, you don't represent the entire community, but was there someone saying, hey, this is not our spokesperson. You're getting this all wrong. Like if I was in that community, I would be appalled that Yaniv is being platformed as somebody who represents me. It just is so ironic, like struggling to get attention for some of these issues. And then suddenly this person is reaching millions but this is something I think that happens to groups all the time. And I think it especially happens to groups that are marginalized and that are vulnerable. As a transgender person, I do not speak for the transgender community. I'm just getting along, right? Yeah. I'm going through my life. But I do believe that the reason that she's being viewed as a spokesperson falls squarely on lazy media. Yeah. That's how I feel. In general, I think that, that the media does a poor job of representing groups that aren't widely represented. And when they do, you know, there's always a cartoonish sort of sort of element to it. And sometimes it's tragic. And sometimes, you know, I'm a transgender person who, you know, lives in a nice place with my partner and she's a physician. I have a son. I work. You know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an ordinary person, right? And I think yeah. we don't do a lot of that. The media is just not good at that. And you could say, well, because it's news. But it's more than just news if someone is stepping outside of their ordinary lives. It's naive to say it's just news. I just kind of feel like we're not interested in you as a normal person who, to the extent that you're engaged with this as, as a journalist or as a human being who's just interested in simple dignity and the same rights that everybody else has. That's not mm -hmm. that interesting a story. Whereas if somebody embodies everyone's worst fears or elicits violent feeling or creates these hot button issues, not only does that serve a purpose for the media, but 
I almost feel like it's inevitable that somebody will step into that role because we are living in, a, in an age where anybody can get famous and where a lot of people want attention and, and are willing to play whatever role yeah. will, will get them that attention. So it's almost like anything you can imagine, however extreme, will be embodied by someone because that is a very quick route to mass exposure. And there are lots of people who want that exposure. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I mean, I think because of how things are set up, our obsession with celebrity, the ability to reach large numbers of people, and we love really extreme stuff. We really do love that kind of sort of scene. And but, but we're playing with fire like it's... it's, it's it uh, is dangerous. It's really dangerous. I mean, whatever Yaniv's doing, for whatever satisfaction it brings her, you have to worry about... Like, they make fun of her for talking about her personal safety and for brandishing the, the taser, and it, it is like a circus and it's ridiculous. But... She certainly wouldn't surprise me if something happened. Uh, the type of violence and anger that this, whether purposely or otherwise, is is triggering amongst millions of people. It's not that much of a stretch to think that it would be visited upon Yaniv or lots of other people. And everybody who engages in this, in staging this carnival and rendering into reality people's bigotries, there are real people who will bear the brunt of that. Absolutely. And I guess that, you know, that helps me clarify something. I don't pass judgment on Jessica Yaniv, partly because I think that is a trap. I think Barack Obama talked about this once. You know, you can't just be a black man if you're in a position of authority. You have to be the best. And I think that transgender people are, you know, the, the clue is in people. Right? We're people along a broad spectrum of behavior and values and ethics and morals and all of that stuff. So the idea of what flows from Jessica Yaniv even that phrase is dangerous. She's not responsible for how right-wing media and the more mainstream media are lazy about this yeah. and they simply run with it. I'm not prepared to put that at Jessica Yaniv's feet, right? Because everybody has a responsibility here. Every time you run with a story that is going to elicit this kind of stuff, and they do the disclaimer. I mean, a lot of the people who tweet this shit, like John Kay, he does, he buries the disclaimer right in his behavior by saying, but you know, I know a lot of trans people who aren't like this, but this is the person you're talking about because you know it's going to elicit a lot of negative feelings. And that disgusts me. We published a piece by Alex Verman who wrote for us, uh, it's astonishing that cisgender writers have simultaneously reported this subject to death and left it completely unstudied. Yeah. So what should we be talking about? And is anyone doing it right? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I think we're going to see better and better representation of the transgender experience. I recently watched on Netflix Tales of the City. I don't know if you had a chance to see it. No. But it's kind of a part two of a book that was big in the 90s. It's set in San Francisco, and it's about this kind of ramshackle building on a hill where back in the day, a lot of gay people got together and, and occupied. And this is an updated version with some of the old actors, uh, Laura Linney's in it, Olympia Dukakis. And it's sort of, you know, a pretty fairly sophisticated representation of a trans male <clears throat> and the difficulties that have nothing to do with how cisgender people see him and has more to do with just his life and his relationships while he fully occupies his, his transgender identity. So it's not like it's, it's a non-starter because that's naive. But So I think we're probably going to see it more on an artistic front. We're going to see some of those changes. But I think what should we be talking about? I think we should be talking about the universal experience of gender. So you identify as a cisgender male. I identify as transgender. We have a lot in common. 
Yeah. We have a lot in common, even around our gender. And so to reduce this stuff to just fear and degradation, it really depresses me because I don't think it's necessary. I think people can just sit with discomfort and they can sit with a lot of these feelings and nothing bad's going to happen. Here I do have to return to the, the specter that you brought up earlier, which is that as much as trans community could feel like they're being horribly represented by the media and there's so much bigotry and there's so much hate out there, amongst a lot of people who are not vicious and vociferous consumers of this media or commenters or hateful people, there is a completely different perspective that it's not the right that is so obsessed with trans. That's not where it's coming from. There are a lot of people out there who feel like, why is this stuff suddenly everywhere? It's a very small percentage of the population and popular culture is now filled with it. And most people are male or female, but I'm constantly getting this message from the media. This is getting rammed down my throat. And a lot of people do have a sense that there is an end game here, which is personal to them, that somebody is going to force them not just to accept people's rights. That most people, I think, are okay with that. But that it's a very personal intrusion that at its extreme is you're going to do something to my kid. But I think that there's like some area in between that where people are feeling very defensive that like you are asking me to somehow rethink my gender or, you know, like I have my own opinions and I'm entitled to them. And this is an intrusion upon me. And to a certain extent, just from the last thing you said, that is the end game, right? Like there is a, a desire to get everyone to think more critically about gender. I wouldn't say critically. I'd say just openly. So, yeah. so right. And so I think. Uh, but yeah. But, but it's interesting you choose the word critically because I is. think I think I think it reveals <laughs> it that. Out of yeah, my yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh, and so I think it isn't about you know. Well, you think you're cisgender. Let me tell you, Jesse. You no, no, no. You're no. That would be critically. Um, but I think just openly, because I don't know what the end game is, but I do know that when we're at the front end of something, and I think transgender people have waited a long time to be part of the discussion. Yeah. And when you look at different eras in history, when you look at the civil rights movement and the explosion of interest, and it was everywhere, and it dominated the conversation in the United States, right? And though we never got the Equal Rights Amendment through, you know, certainly women's rights were dominating the 70s. And then I think, you know, when you look at the campaign for gay marriage, it dominated the conversation. That's what happens, right? And yeah. and it's clunky sometimes, and maybe it overreaches in other times and, and all kinds of things. I think that this anxiety or this worry or this, this sort of conjecture about the end game, that's not new either. So everybody just needs to chill. That's my advice. I think people just need to chill because I think this is, we've been here before in so many issues. And so I don't think any of this is new. And I think part of the problem is that we live in such charged times. Like it's easy to imagine that the world is just going in a very bad direction. On both both sides are imagining that, which is interesting. So the left is like, holy shit, we got kids in cages on the border. And the right is like, oh my God, academia has become, you know, just this coddling place. It's a nursery, you know, whatever, like really going, you know, and and immigrants are going to- And much worse than that. And and much worse than that. I think that makes it difficult to follow the, hey, everybody just relax, it's going to be okay. But I do believe that this isn't that different than other journeys we've seen for marginalized groups. Yeah, both things can be true at the same time. Like, yes, perhaps this moment is asking people to open their minds and consider not only other people's humanity, but their own conceptions about things. And that is personal. Yeah. And that is threatening to people, the idea that you are asking something personally of them uh, to, to adapt their opinions or their feelings about something so personal as gender and sexuality, but they'll be okay. 
I do. I do think so. It's okay. No one's going to make you do anything. No one's going to make you do anything. And and so, you know, I mean, I know that's in this day and age, this is a hard sell. And no one's ever accused me of being a Pollyanna. I'm actually being practical (laughs) because people are who they are. And, you know, there's going to be steps forward and steps back. But I think this obsession right now, it is dangerous. It's not truthful. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is hurtful to a lot of people. But mostly it's just... You're just gumming up the works, you know, for what is an inevitable, hopefully, that people continue to, to sort of move forward and, and just grow. Can I say something here? Like, you, you use a, a, a phrase like sitting in your discomfort and that it's okay. I think I've been sitting here in my discomfort throughout. The, like, I have stumbled and been so awkward and I'm, I'm so trepidatious. And yet my desire to try to explore things and actually just be honest about my questions and my feelings about this are up against, you know, a fear of saying the wrong thing. And there will be people who will find things. But your generosity in being here, but also in just like trying to figure out what I'm actually trying to get at, is not a small thing. I think it's a necessary thing. And I wish I had more authority on this stuff or, or, you know, just dexterousness. But I think the only way to get there is to sit in that discomfort and stumble through it. Yeah, and practice. I mean, I grew up in my household hearing the N-word, right? My parents worked at a school for delinquent boys, which was predominantly kids from New York City, uh, black and Hispanic. That was the predominant sort of, and at home, those those are the words we heard, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, that's only, I'm, I'm 58. And those words would have been very common in the United States in households. And I learned early on that was not, those were not good things to say. And Everybody gets used to stuff. There's things that you would never say. You, Jesse Brown, would never say, and you don't stumble over it. You don't have to think about it. Is you're fluent in not being an asshole in certain in certain areas, in right? Certain areas. We learn, yeah. right? And so I think if you haven't had to learn something like this, I don't know where you were, right? Like in a way, I don't I don't really know any person who hasn't had to learn that something that they thought was okay is no longer okay. Because all time does is go forward. That's all it does is it goes forward. And so I think everybody understands that, that that we're always on a learning curve. But I think you have to actually talk to people. You have to talk to people. Like if you're just, if you're in the comment section, you might not get there. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. One of the biggest stumbling blocks that people have to learning a new language is, you know, I'm going to sound stupid. Mm-hmm. So they'll read the textbooks and they'll try to teach themselves French from a book, but then, you know, no, because I might pronounce it wrong. You know, it's it's it's, it's not dissimilar in a way. I think fluency and, and sort of that kind of growth just happens with just keep talking. Mary Rogan, thank you. Thank you. Okay, that's Canada Land for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. It is a show that is free for everybody in your life, in your world. They might not even know it exists, so uh, tell them about it. Email me about Canada Land. Uh, we can talk. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read what you send me. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. We have a website at canadalandshow.com, and that is where you'll find the last episode of Commons in their current season on Crude, all about incredible stories about how the energy industry is uh, affecting Canadians. Check this out. If you haven't heard this season start at the beginning, if you have been following it, make sure to check out the finale because they're going out with a bang. This episode is produced by Kasia Mihailovich and our managing editor, Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. 
visit them online at cfuv.ca. Listen, if Canada Land is a part of your life, if you listen to the show, if you read our news stories, uh, you have to know that we rely on our supporters to keep the whole thing going. We need your support. Go to patreon.com slash Canada Land. Help us out.